Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Maybe this thing that I thought was the medicine is what is making me sicker. The church is actually poison. Did you stop going right away? Did you kind of pepper in church every now and then to kind of test? I couldn't even bring myself to drive on the property of the church. I've had like nieces and nephews leave for missions. And I mean, I want to go, I want to support them. It's hard to be on a mission and you want your family there behind you, but I, I just can't bring myself to do it. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can subscribe and hit the bell so you don't miss any episodes. Join in on the conversation in the comments. I love, love, love this community that we've created in the comments. Everyone is so lovely and supporting of our guests, and that's really what... I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. People just being supportive of these people who are coming on and being brave and telling their stories because it's not easy to do. So we thank you for being so respectful there. Today's guest, she reached out to me and I'm so happy that she did because she has quite the story to tell. And it's from, I guess you could call it my home team cult, Mormonism. (laughs) But it is Mormon extremism. Now we've covered fundamentalism in the past, and that is not technically it, but it is some some sort of extreme orthodox Mormonism that goes into the survivalist doomsday kind of sector. So, There's a lot to discuss, a lot to get into. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us, Rachel. Hi, nice to meet you. So glad I'm here. Yes, I'm so happy that you're here too. And you are stunning. Look at you. You're just glowing. Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. All right. So let's just give in a few broad strokes what we're going to go over today. So we're talking about Mormonism specifically. We're talking about how you are part of this survivalist group that is like the world is going to end. And that's not uncommon because in mainstream Mormonism, you have these revelations from Joseph Smith about the latter days. I mean, the church is literally called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So he even said the world is going to end in our lifetime and we are the chosen ones. We are in the last days. The second coming is imminent and prepare, get your food storage ready. So there's there's a very, I don't know if it's a light undertone, it's a medium undertone of people in the mainstream Mormon church that do believe that the world is going to end and they have food storage. I mean, we had a huge seller of food storage and 72-hour emergency kits. But what we're getting into today is when that is taken to the extreme, and that's where you come in, Rachel. So Are there any kind of broad strokes that you want to mention before we get into the nitty gritty of your story? Yeah. So my husband was raised mainstream Mormon and the second coming of Christ was a thing and all this last day stuff was a thing, but it was a very minor undertone to mainstream Mormonism. And 
he says that if he could go back and talk to his younger self, he would have told his younger self that, hey, you're marrying a girl from a different religion. I was raised in a different religion. Even though I attended Sunday every Sunday, I think I've only missed like four Sundays my whole life um, before I left the church. So I, I attended mainstream Mormon church and I, you know, did the whole mainstream Mormon thing from the outside, but I was definitely part of a different religion on the inside. Mm, yeah. So let's get into what those differences would look like. And I also want to point out that your story is pretty much parallel to Educated oh by Tara Westover, the book Educated. Yeah. Shout out to Tara. Tell us what was going through your mind when you read that book. I feel, I, I feel like she's a kindred spirit. I really loved her story, not because it's a beautifully comforting story in any way. It's because I just, I related to her so much and I feel like she was a long lost friend kind of being a fly on the wall in my life. Like our stories are very similar. Um, there's been a couple authors like that where I feel almost like they're my long lost sister or cousin. Just, just mm. really helped me process what I had been through. And by the time we get through this interview, everyone's going to say, okay, Rachel, where's your book? (laughs) Because there's so much to cover. Guys, she sent me this outline of things we could potentially cover. And it was like six pages. And I'm like, I can't even narrow this down. Like, we have to talk about all of it. And that's the edited version of my... Yeah, yeah. So I get it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So to give people an idea of why it was so extreme... Uh, your parents didn't believe in government, in hospitals. Uh, you had no running water, the education. Oh, yeah. I went to college early. I went to college at 14. Yeah, it was a very much us and them kind of mentality. Like, I was in an inner circle, if you will. We uh, trained horses, like wild mustangs. That that was pretty extreme version of having a living as a little kid. Yeah, living off the land. We had to like transport water with like barrels, like 50 gallon drums. I remember um, washing dishes in the stream with like a juniper bush. Like, oh, wow. Things like that. Uh, taking baths in cold streams. Washing our laundry in those big barrels, those big metal 50-pound barrels. Like, we put all the laundry in and the soap and the kids, us, me, and my siblings would, like, basically stand in them and, like, uh, walk around in them to, like, wash our laundry. And, oh, boy, when you're in it, it doesn't feel extreme. It feels normal. But, um, yeah, I would get glimpses, like, this is hella weird. This is hella weird Other from other people. Okay. Yeah, so let's start from the very, very beginning. Let's get into the details here. Now, you had a very interesting birth story. We don't normally go back all the way to birth, but I feel like this is a very relevant story. Oh, yeah, and I feel like it it shows how my parents were from the instant I was born. So I was born in my grandmother's house by a midwife, and uh, my dad was a welder, so he brought his, like, oxygen tanks to the birth just in case. And uh, I had my umbilical cord wrapped around my neck and they used his like oxygen from his work to like revive me because I was purple. My face was purple and stuff. I wasn't born in a hospital. That's not a normal thing generally. Later, my mom got into midwifery even more and um, she had my youngest sibling from home and um, 
I wanted her to be my midwife when I had my kids. I don't want to jump the gun, but that didn't work out how I wanted or planned because I had twins. But yeah, midwifery free and natural remedies were very um, highly prized and health care was kind of seen as a negative thing. Um, I didn't go to the hospital my whole uh, childhood, even till I was, well, till I had my twins when I was an adult. So I never went to, I, I never was checked in a hospital or had a doctor's appointment, um, things like that. Were there any times where you absolutely should have gone to the hospital and didn't <laughs> as a child? Um, probably a couple. <clears throat> yeah, I fell off a cliff and- um, Oh my gosh. I didn't get like a, even a, a chiropractic adjustment or anything like that. Nothing. Um, in fact, after it happened, my brother who was driving decided to race his friend on the way home in his truck. And I remember like looking over him and I was like, you will slow down or I will kill you. Like, I just like had the fear of God in my eyes. Like, this is like so painful. So I go home and um, my dad, I guess, blamed all of it on my brother, like, because we were together at this event and stuff. So he was yelling at him, like, she couldn't have babies. Like, you probably ruined her. Like, and I just remember laying in my bed overhearing this fight going on in the front room and thinking, like, that's the most important thing if I have babies. Like, and then I was concerned, like, oh, what if I can't have babies? Cause like, that was my life, my job. I'm a woman in this culture. And that's what I amount to is like my ability to have babies, not my ability to walk normally. Um, <laughs> or whatever. I, after that, when we, I rode horses, I would have to put the stirrup like a notch or two higher because my hips were so like out of whack. I later have done lots of therapy and, and there now I'm adjusted and, and a lot better from it or from that time. But yeah, like that was just one time, but I've had several accidents. Wait, did you break any bones? I mean, you you literally just skimmed over like I fell off a cliff and I'm like, what happened? Like, did you break things? I mean, I can just imagine the trauma from that. I, I like I, I don't know if I broke anything because I never got any. I got no assessments. Well, I mean, you must have been in excruciating pain, though. Like how long before you could could you walk? I mean, yeah, I was like. It was slow going for the next couple of days, but um, I don't know. I, I was also the kind of kid that grinned and bared things a lot and kept things to myself. My family had a lot going on, so I took in, I internalized a lot, and I didn't complain very much. And so, I don't know. I just kind of dealt with it. Whoa. Okay, I want to get into your family dynamics so we can paint a full picture of what it's like for you at home as a child. So I want to talk about how many siblings you have, where you are in that lineup, and then I want to get into your dad. So I have seven siblings. So there's eight of us kids. Um, I'm the fifth. So there's three boys, my three oldest brothers, then my older sister, and then me. And then I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. Um, and although I'm the fifth child, there was a, a kind of switch when I turned around 13 ish, when I was like a young teenager, uh, where I kind of felt like I was an older child of the family. I, 
I kind of treated my my siblings like I was an older sibling. I was very like nurturing and um, mm. did a lot of house care, cooking, cleaning, stuff like that. As far as my dynamic with my parents, when I was around nine, I remember having a struggle with them and like leaving the house and just like standing in the backyard thinking about the situation and realizing like my parents just have too much on their plate to parent me. Like they are just so, so encumbered with all their life that I, I'm a burden on them, if you will. And so it was kind of like I made this internal decision to be my own parent from that time on. Mm. Wow, that must have been so hard. What were they busy with that they couldn't take care of you guys? I mean, they struggled with like, making enough money for us. We're a big family. And um, my dad got in an accident when I was, how old was I? I think I was five or six, he fell off of a 42 foot building, uh, when he was working construction and he miraculously lived that actually. So I said, I never had been in a hospital. That was the only time that I had been in a hospital was visiting him. And he looked like Frankenstein. Like he literally had stitches like up and down his legs and like, it was intense. Um, so after that, it, it was harder. Money was harder to come by. My mom was pregnant with my youngest sister. Um, it, it just seemed like life was a, a real big struggle for them. Like just putting food on the table was hard for them. Like the day to day was hard for them. Mm-hmm. Living life was such a challenge for them and taking care of my other siblings. Some had, had more concerns at the time than I did. And I felt like I just needed to be a parent. I needed to step up and and not take so much because there was such a need that I just couldn't, I couldn't be a taker. I had to be the a giver in that circumstance. Yeah. I think that you mentioned in your outline that your parents were living off of and supporting you guys off of $10,000 a year. Yeah. So that blows my mind. <laughs> We, we moved a lot, but, um, that, that I remember specifically my mom talking to me about taxes and I was around 10 and, uh, that's how much they filed for that year. We luckily weren't paying rent because we were, um, living free on someone's property. They said that we were watching their property for them. And so that was a saving grace, but like, that's not a lot of money for a large family to live on. Uh, no. We ate lots and lots of beans and rice. And and whenever we could get, like, big bulk of things from people, we would. Like, we gleaned fills with potatoes and made our underground cellar. And um, we got a big, big, like, shipment of pancake mix for some reason. <laughs> And I hate pancakes to this day because like <laughs> it was just so overdone. It, it was kind of like you had a mono diet of whatever we could oh, get right. our hands on. So how much of this? Because I don't want to say it's because you were Mormon. So I want to get your opinion on how much of what you went through and what your parents put you through was deeply connected or intertwined with Doomsday Mormonism. Yeah. So my parents were very, very strong believers in, in their beliefs and in their version of Mormonism. And so I think it caused them to 
dig their heels in even more. And they saw it as their escape. Like, if we just go through this now, then we'll be blessed later. And uh, an example of this is uh, when we were moving one more time, another time of the million times I moved. I think I moved 20 times before I left the house at 18. My dad, was, as he was driving to where we were moving, we were moving from Arizona to Utah, he got this um, impression or revelation or, well, I don't know what he would call it, something like that, where he felt like God was asking him, do you want to go through the hard times now or do you want to go through them later? Like if you go through the hard times now, that when the hard times come, you'll be ready to like help others and it will be no big deal for you. And you'll be able to survive the hard times so much easier if you go through them now. And so that preceded his fall that preceded a lot of things that happened. And uh, I think it was like a reinforcement of their faith that they were going through these things. Yeah. Let's talk about what those belief systems are exactly because even I'm a little fuzzy on the details. I know Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, said a lot of kooky things, but I'm trying to connect the dots as to how it would get this extreme because you still went to the mainstream Mormon church and you were still hearing the same lessons that I was hearing, for example, but it clearly went in a very different direction. So help me understand what their exact beliefs were to lead you to the childhood that you led. Okay, so they believe that uh, China and Russia would attack us on American soil. And um, basically, God would protect us through all these hard times, but it was like a cleansing thing for the church and for the nation that people would have to die and plagues would happen and things would happen to basically... uh divide the tares from the weeds, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as like our family was concerned, there was a lot of like, this will happen, like we will be in Grand Canyon first and then go through Southern Utah and then eventually we'll en- end up in Missouri. Um, my dad had lots of visions. I, I use it with air quotes because I, I don't know if I believe in those. I, okay, I do not believe in those visions anymore. <laughs> One of his visions, he talked to one of the the 12 apostles and they were saying, we need to get to Missouri. Like we need to get all, all the saints to Missouri because it's not safe anymore in Utah and in the West. But every time we try to get there, the like bad guys um, inhibit us like, or, or we just can't punch through this, this, um, whatever is going on in the middle of the country. And so my dad was like, I need this, 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 and this, these men, and I need to do it. Like I'll, I'll get you, I'll get you guys there and I'll establish a safe place in Missouri. Jackson County, Missouri is like what he said. And so like the 12 apostle was like, I don't really like your, I don't know. My dad was like very uh, peppered person, very like, gusto like a big guy too like super broad shoulders tall and meaty really meaty and uh he's like we're gonna have to do this the hard way and you're not gonna like it because you you mormons are all sissies and lovey-dovey but (laughs) all make sure it happens and like kind of like a porter rockwell type like 
he was an idol in our house, and uh, oh, I, wow. a, I have a sibling that named their kid after him. No um, way. Can we pause yeah. a second and let people know who aren't familiar who Porter Rockwell is in Mormon history? Okay, so he was the bodyguard of Joseph Smith, and there were some stories about Porter Rockwell getting shot up, and like bullets would just like not affect him if he didn't cut his hair. So he kept his hair long. It was like this um, Samson story. Like he got a blessing. Like you never cut your hair like Samson from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You will always be safe. So like bullets would be hitting him. And then like at the end, he would like shake his jacket and all these bullets would fall because he was just like protected by God. And yeah. like, yeah, that he was like the OG in our house. Like we're like, Joseph Smith, cool. But Porter Rockwell, oh that's, my like, that's where God. it's at. And he literally <laughs> killed people for Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith would say, oh, yeah. you need to take out this guy. And he would assassinate people for him. Yeah. And my dad was a tough guy and my brothers were tough guys and they really wanted to live up to that persona. Wow. Okay. So your dad is having these visions and I'm wondering about his state of mind. Did he view himself as kind of the the real vessel for God? Because you're following a prophet, especially if you're going to mainstream Mormon church, you already have a prophet how did he feel about that prophet? Did he feel like they were getting it wrong and he was getting the real revelation? So he thought the prophet was getting revelation, but he thought the prophet was like giving a secret codes to general conference. Like, this is what he really means, but he can't say it because no one else is prepared for it kind of thing. Like what? Oh my goodness. It would be so many times like after conference, they're like, that means that this is going to happen. Like, I-, I don't know. Just like, Whenever uh, Nelson said, like, take your vitamins and stuff. Yeah. After talking to siblings, I was like, is Christ going to, like, come to Ottoman Dianon and, like, start this, like, I don't know, the last days? Is, is he going to open the seventh seal is what they call it? Um, that's, that's, like, a reference to Revelation. Every seal is a thousand years. And the opening of the seventh seal is, like, the millennium is officially, like, going down. And... I don't know. They just would really, really read between the lines and be like, this is Morris code. The prophet knows. Oh, (laughs) my gosh. Okay. I definitely want to get into how your family reacted to 2020, but I want to go back to your childhood first because there's a lot to cover. So when it came to education, did they allow you to go to a public school? I did go to public school in kindergarten. When I went to school, some things came up with CPS. I remember one day I went to school and my arm was dirty because we didn't shower very often because we had to haul our water. So it was like a weekly shower was the the go-to thing if you were lucky. And my teacher came up to me and she was like, hey, Rachel, your arm is dirty. Like, maybe like go to the bathroom and wash it off. And so I like I remember washing it off in the water fountain for some reason instead of the, oh. the bathroom. I don't know why. I I was uh, raised by wolves, let's just say that. (laughs) Anyways, we definitely stood out. There was, you know, it was, it was kind of obvious. And I remember one day uh, being called out of class and, and we went to this room in the school that I had never been in. And it was like a room with a table and lots of chairs around it. I, I'm guessing like a conference room now. But I didn't have words for that then. So I'm in this conference room and all my siblings come there too. And it was just like hella weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're just sitting there and um a guy comes in from CPS and he's like 
dressed really nice and everything. And um, I really distinctly remember his pen. Like he had a very fancy pen and notebook. And I was just like, like, who is this guy? And he started like asking questions to us, like, like, do you eat often? Uh, where do you go to the bathroom? And I was just like a little kid. So I was super honest. I was like, oh yeah, like sometimes we just like go behind a bush. Like that's all we have. <laughs> oh, like, so you didn't have actual toilets because you didn't have running water. Yeah. So at the time we didn't have, we later got a porter potty that, that was a lot better situation, but, um, yeah. So like I was very candid with him. And then, um, and I didn't think anything of it. Like I'm a kid. I've been taught my whole life to tell the truth and be honest. And you know, that's how Jesus taught us to be. I'm going yeah. to church every Sunday. That's so, um, it didn't work out. Like it backfired. Um, we end up having like monthly visits from CPS. Again, the CPS agent stood out like a sore thumb at our house, like at our little trailer. Uh, it just seemed like such a harsh contrast seeing them in a nice car drive into our property and, you know, the nice pen, the nice notebook, the nice shoes. And it, it felt so out of place, like it, the contrast. What, one visit really stands out in my head is uh, when my sister, she was, it was her birthday and we had to clean the house. And when you have, eight siblings in a tiny house. It's like an all day project to clean the house. You have to like heat up the water to do the dishes and Mm. everything was like scoured floor to ceiling, like a lot of effort. So after the CPS agent came and did his investigation and left, like we're like, okay, time for dinner. Like, and we only had a can of green beans. (laughs) Like that was our dinner. And I just remember being like, this is a crappy birthday. Like in my head, like, aw, like, Happy birthday. I'm just, yeah. This is sad. <laughs> I don't know how the CPS system works, Child Protective Services, for those who don't, un- don't know. But it would seem to me that if they were to go into where you were living and see that you didn't have electricity or running water or food to eat, they would have taken you away. So why is it that that, never, that was never triggered, that that didn't happen? Yeah. So... The CPS system was like really villainized by our parents. Like I was by the, at first I was kind of taken off guard and I didn't know what was going on with them, which is why I was so honest and truthful. But then my parents were like, these are bad people. They're trying to take you from us. Like, I don't know, it was a very us and them thing. And I really villainized them in my head. So it was surprising that we did stay with them or stay with our parents but like we tried our hardest to look the part. Fine, finally, um, a local sheriff that my dad was friends with told CPS basically like leave that family alone. They really love their kids. They're just poor. That's all it is. Basically, get off their back. Even though they are living in circumstances that are less than ideal, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Um, so after that, they kind of backed off. It was a from what I could tell a gradual process, I don't remember the exact details. I do remember one surprise visit. I was wearing a bathing suit because I'm a kid and I'm just like running around the house in my bathing suit. And my mom sees them drive up and she's like, looks at me. She's like, go get some clothes on right now. Like 
I never had, my mom is a very, uh, uh, sweet or she's not like aggressive at all. Mm-hmm. And so it was like shocking, like, okay, mom, <laughs> I'll go get some clothes on. Do you remember your feelings and your thoughts towards these agents? Because how old were you when this happened? I guess I'm trying to figure out if, like you said, they were from a different planet in their fancy car and their nice clothes, and you can clearly distinguish that you're different. Were you in the mindset because of your parents that, yes, they are bad and I need to lie and do everything I can to stay with parents? Or was there some part of you that wanted them to take you away? No, I didn't want to be taken at all. Like I, I was very much convinced that they were the the bad guys, that mm. they were trying to take us from our parents. This is the safe place for us to be with our parents. Even though I knew based off of just how I dressed at school that I was not taken care of, my parents would say like, oh, you know that we love you. So, and you know that this is like, they're trying to take you from us. It's them. Mm. It's their fault. This is all on them. I really stuck to that as a kid. And after that, I started to become more closed-lipped about my life. Even at church, I was more closed-lipped. Whereas before, I was very like outgoing. At, at school, I was more outgoing. But like, I, I don't know. I felt like I had to hide their secret to protect mm. myself, to keep me with them because the bad guys were taking me. Yeah. Otherwise, like, or would take me otherwise. You mentioned that you were a very devout Mormon. I would like to get through your perspective what it was like going to church and hearing the lessons and if they conflicted with any lessons at home that kind of separated you from the people at church yeah so as a kid like I was the kid like on the edge of the seat like with the right answers and love and Jesus and all that stuff (laughs) and like I was like totally into it there was like a kind of switch somewhere in there where it started I started being like, they don't know. Like, I know more than them because of the way my parents had taught me. And we would hear things in church and talk on the way home and basically deconstruct mainstream Mormonism and re like layer it with this like last days, doomsday, knowing more than mysteries and secrets of the gospel because somehow we are like more connected to God than they are. Oh. How does your dad fit into all of this at church? Like, is he acting like he knows more than everybody? And when he would he come home and say, I know they said this in sacrament meeting, but this is what we need to do because they don't have all of the information. Did oh, you yeah. feel like there was conflicting opinions frequently? It was conflicting opinions. And my dad was always the authority. Like, we, we would look at him and be like, what do you think, dad? Like, like, you tell us, you know more than them. You are right. They are wrong. They don't know all of the truth. We know more truth than them. Like we're here to, I don't know, save them, especially when the last day starts and it's going to be a rude awakening for them. We're going to be here for them and just kind of roll your eyes in the meantime and know that you're better than them. Yeah. I You mentioned in your, in your outline that you thought for sure you were going to be the prophet's wife. Oh, yeah. Talk to us about that. Okay, so I was a really precocious kid and very involved in, in Sunday school and stuff like that. Like, 
I knew the scriptures like the back of my hand. And um, often like my lessons in young women's and Sunday school would be like me and the teacher talking and the kids sometimes like the teacher trying to include the other kids. But like, it was like, I felt like I was an adult having a discussion with another adult. Like, uh-huh. so um, one word I was in, like the other young women's are like, you just like knew your stuff, Rachel. And you're like, so righteous and blah, blah, blah. Like, you are definitely going to be a prophet's wife. Like, <laughs> and I was just like, that's right. Yes, I am. Like, uh, I mean, outwardly, I didn't say that. But inwardly, I was like, I thought I was the, OG, the real thing. Like, I was the OG. Yeah. How were your other siblings? Were they also very self-righteous? Oh, yeah. Like, we we had our name for ourselves. Like, we would come to dances and everyone knew, like, the grandies. Like, we were, like, all outgoing and, like, really good dancers and just, like, and like, we would just try to outperform anyone like at like stake uh, service projects or whatever, <laughs> like all the leaders knew us like, and we were, we were like adults trapped in, in teenagers bodies. So like, because we went to school early, we all went to college early. Um, I went to college after eighth grade. I, I started at a junior college. We had a name for ourselves and people would be like, your parents are weird, but your kids are cool. And so that's why your parents aren't as like, we're, we're okay with the parents because like they produce like pretty stellar kids. And oh, we were wow. just like, Mike job. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love that it wasn't all um, lack. It feels like it was a very full home full of love and support. And um, like you had really good relationships with your siblings. So you went to school early. They, they allowed you to start first grade early or how were you able to finish from eighth grade? So <laughs> my dad was convinced that high school was a waste of time and that you repeat it in college, like whatever you learn in high school. And when my oldest three brothers were going into high school, the high school near us had like a really high pregnancy rate. And he's like, I don't want to send my kids to that cesspool. Like, <sighs> They're, they're going to college. Like, that's just what's going to happen or be homeschooled. I don't care, but they're not going there. So, um, then we moved different towns. And by the time I uh, finished eighth grade, it was normal practice for my family to go to college right after that. So I start my first semester of college and I was very aware of what legally I could do, like how many credits I could get away with, with not having a GED. Cause you can't get a GED till you're 16. And I was oh. 14. Yeah. So legally in Arizona, I, I could take nine credits. And so I took nine credits my first semester and I aced them and I go into my second semester and I'm like, can I take more classes? Like I really, really would like to. And my counselor was just like, uh, why can't you? I'm confused. And I'm like, well, I'm only 14 (laughs) and it's not legal. And she's like, Oh, I got you. And she like totally signed my paper and let me like take 15 credits and stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it was a lot of I, people would be like, Oh, you guys are really smart. And ironically, a lot of us have dyslexia and things like that. So my answer to that, when they would say, say like, Oh, you're so smart. I'd be like, no, I'm like a hard worker. Yeah. I would stay late at school. Like, uh, till nine o'clock at night. When I first started college, I didn't have a job. My brother was a tutor at the school and he would stay late. And so I would stay late with him because he was my ride home and home was like 45 minutes away. Oh. So, um, 
yeah, like, and then when I was old enough to get a job, I would, I, I stayed late. I don't know. I just studied a lot. I lived in the library. I felt like the librarians were like my second mothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure this out because usually what happens when you're in a high control situation is the way they keep you in is through information control. Now, I know that you were 100% on board with your dad and whatever he was telling you, which is a a whole nother level, right, of trust and you've given over your essentially freedom or free will to him to make decisions. But you're going to college so young and you're being exposed to all of these new ideas and the world, essentially. So did you find that you had to compartmentalize your beliefs and maybe were you learning things at college that you're like, well, I know that evolution's not true because Mormonism says the the world is only 6,000 years old. Were you finding conflicting information or were you beginning to be liberated from your world because of your education yeah so my dad believed that science and religion were in conflict he was a very big fan of a jewish author that combined religion with science like he explained how the red sea parted it was because the magnetic fills in the earth changed when a comet was coming by the earth and how evolution is just god's way of working it's not discounting that there's a god Mm -hmm. science and religion never conflicted but liberalism did Uh, my dad was always cautioning us against like anything that was kind of woke or whatever the first college i went to was yavapai college and there's a lot of hippies and stuff that live in prescott so i have like a hippie teacher Mm -hmm. and uh literally this teacher would like walk around with like no shoes on like come to class with like dreadlocks and like therapy. (laughs) He was like the OG. I hated shoes. So I was like, I'm all in this. Like I would run around the desert as a kid with like no shoes. So I was like, you're, you're pretty cool. And he had us read this book about this girl who lived in a tree to protect the tree from being cut down by forestation. And at first I didn't think it conflicted with my beliefs, but then um, my dad like was helping edit my paper one day and basically changed my whole paper <laughs> and basically like had me insert quotes like from Isaiah about like the trees being cut down. Like this was prophesied and it's just the beginning of the end. Isaiah was right. And basically it's okay to cut down trees because it was going to be prophesied that it would happen. And the whole world's going to turn into a seed glass anyways. So like, there's no point in preserving it. And it was hard to like satisfy my teachers and also like deal with what my dad was telling me. Whenever they met, I, it was awful. Like that, I got the worst grade on any paper I've ever gotten. Oh, <laughs> I, no. I really wish I would have just like scratched his ideas and gone with my original, but it was kind of like, I knew what the teachers wanted. My dad was right. But I needed to give them what they wanted. And my dad would say that too. Like, just, just play the game. Just do what they need to do. And that, that wasn't just school. That was religion. Like, say the right things. Do whatever you need to do in public. But secretly, we know they're wrong. Like, we know they're wrong. It's okay. It was interesting. I took a critical thinking class after that. And they basically were saying, like, if you take any information, and you conform it to what you already believe, you're not critical thinking. Like you need to take the information for what it is and and just look at what the information is telling you, not don't conform it to what you believe. And I remember telling my dad that and he was like, 
well, I am like the only critical thinker out there. Like everyone else doesn't think about anything, but I do. Like I take all this information and he was like confirming that he did that. And I was like, in that moment, I had this realization. I was like, you are doing the opposite. Even right now, like you do this all the time. It was just like a huge eye opener for me that, oh, you don't really critical think. Like you have a set of beliefs, you have a set of ideals. And you take all these stories and conform it to those ideals and all this information, conform it to those ideals and like fit it into this box. But to say that you're more open-minded than anyone else. It was like that first moment where the cognitive dissonance started cracking in my mind. And I can't wait to dive into that more. I think before we get there, I want to talk about maybe this is why your dad wanted you to have the specific education that you did because you had told me before about your roles in the end times. And I would love to get into what your role was, your mother, your brothers, and how you had been preparing for these roles. Going to college early makes you have to pick your major early. (laughs) And so here I am like a 15, 16 year old trying to like narrow in what major I want. And um, I ended up on engineering because all this end times and this pressure made us feel like we need to be ready for the last days. Also, he really pushed engineering. He put him on a pedestal. Like they are taught how to think, not what to think. And if you can critically analyze like actual information like data and science and since he had this connection with science and religion like the more scientific you are the more closer to god you are like i had a brother and he was like the very basic thing of life it's it's light and light is like the building blocks of society or of not society the world and um he found this out through reading doctrine and covenants and stuff and so there was this connection there and so I, I thought like, if I, if I do engineering, if that's my major, that will help me in the last days be a critical thinker, be tougher, stronger. Like I can withstand other things. Like I need to have a good head on my shoulders and be ready for these hard times so I can help others in the hard times. What were your father's assignments for everybody else for the end times? So, um, my dad would often give us blessings and his blessings were always very interesting and he would have visions and stuff like that and um these visions and blessings basically gave us different roles in the last days and my three older brothers were like captains of the lord's hosts and actually all the boys kind of were like my my parents were like we're raising the captains of the lord's hosts god is trusting us raising these tough capable competent young men and it kind of felt like Oh, what are we doing as the girls? Yeah. <laughs> like all the boys are like these badasses with like these future, like, I don't know, awesomeness. And, and I don't, we're like the leftovers. <laughs> I had a brother who said he had a vision about he went through, uh, the enemy's camp with him and his friend and they somehow could like run faster than people could see them. And they would go and like take all the, grenade rings off of the grenades in the camp and since they were so fast like it didn't blow up until they left the camp and so they left the camp and they looked at their fingers and saw all these grenade rings and then like looked back and like the whole camp was like blowing up so like we thought that spirituality had a strong connection with like warfare oh (laughs) i remember a blessing specifically that uh 
one of my brothers, my dad mentioned like his other wives because my dad believed polygamy would come back. Mm. And he was like super gung ho, like, yep, polygamy is going to happen when the last day starts. Like, this is a true principle and we as a church strayed from it and we will get back to it. How does your mom feel about all of this? Um, so my mom wasn't crazy about polygamy, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think very many women would be. <laughs> and, um, I remember my dad, like, telling her, like, you have to be okay with this. This is, like, internal principle. This is true. It's going to come back. You have to be okay with this now. And she's like, when the last days come, I'll figure out then. And um, he was, like, so insistent, like, no, give me your word that you will go forward with this when it, when it does happen. And so it became this, like, really big state of contention between them. And, of course, they always pull us kids into it. And we're hearing both sides of the story. I felt like my my parents' therapist, like talking to my mom, talking to my dad, working out through this. And um, basically, finally, my mom was like, fine, sure. I'll, if that happens, I'll agree to it. But it just like turned into this big drama that I don't think it was necessary at the time. But right. my dad fullheartedly believed it. And your mom, she didn't work like a normal job, right? She made tinctures and herbal medications. My mom was a CNA and she had other jobs. Um, she was a teacher's assistant at a time. Mm. She was a dental assistant. She was the main provider in our home. Oh. Um, so all her interest in midwifery was on this side. She, okay. um, would read lots of midwifery books. She had a lot of midwifery friends. That's probably why we moved from one of the areas we had because she was getting too deep into midwifery, which kind of like, got her into some people that were like kind of questioning the gospel too much. And my dad was like, we got to go. Cause this, I think it was like his way of keeping the authority. Mm. Like we have to keep believing this. She was the main provider. Her roles in the last days was midwifery and healing. She wanted to be a spiritual healer. And she had like, I she thought she could just like heal people from touching them and things like that. Like she, she really believed that, like, if her faith was strong enough, like, she could heal someone or they could be healed. Wow. How did your dad feel about that? Because I know in mainstream Mormonism, it's the man who holds God's power and the man who has what they call the priesthood. And they are the ones that do the laying on of hands and give blessings and heal by God. So if your mom is claiming that she can do the same thing, did that affect your dad? Yeah. So my dad, I think used it to his advantage. Like I remember my dad was hurting or something was wrong with him. And he made my mom sit there with his hand on him, holding her hand to the square, bringing in light through her hand to his like, whatever, like he, he liked it. Cause that meant he, she could take care of him. And after being in an accident as big as he was in like, you need all the help you can get. So I think he saw it as like a way of, of helping him. And I think he saw himself as like a military guy and a bodyguard and a like, I'm going to go kill people and you're going to heal people. Like that was kind of the mentality. My older sister, she has like dyslexia, but her like role and mission was to be a record keeper and she would journal a lot and stuff. But she, she even told me before this interview, like, 
how in the world was I like, was that assigned to me? Like that just, <laughs> it doesn't jive. Like I, she's like, I hate writing. Like this is like awful, like horrible rule. But when you're like really deep into Mormonism, like even my journals from those days sounded like first Nephi, like, I oh, Rachel was born on awesome parents. Like I have this many siblings. So <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a letdown. Like all of our brothers are doing all these badass things and that's, what we're doing and or what she's doing and then my role was like I really liked ballerinas when I was a little girl and I wanted to be a ballerina and so my role at first was to be like an entertainer like the troops would come home and I'd entertain them but like looking back I'm like so am I just like <laughs> a stripper <laughs> like it found it found it felt like like I'm the entertainer of the troops you know those like girls from the 40s that would go out yeah, and the entertain the troops dancers. and sing them songs and, yeah. yeah like I was just like this is weird okay um I didn't think of that at the time though I was just like I'm gonna be a star this is amazing yeah (laughs) and but it still wasn't as cool as like my brothers and so over time like I think I started bonding more with my dad and I started leaning into like more masculine traits and I think that's how I earned his love was not being girly anymore. Mm. And uh, so my role in the last days magically changed and I was going to be a strategic planner and I was going to stay in like the hub, the safe place. My brothers were going to go off to war and then come back and tell me the information and I would plan out military strategy and stuff, which I thought was pretty cool. I was like, yeah, this is like, and also why I picked engineering, because, like, you have to do, like, Calc 3 and, like, a lot of strategy and critical thinking. And so it all was connected in my mind. Yeah. So finally, I was badass. <laughs> yes, I love that. So you guys moved around quite a bit. And you had mentioned sometimes it was to kind of keep the family in check. Were there other reasons why you kept moving? How often would you say you moved? As a child, the reasons we moved were because God told us that we needed to move. That's what my parents would say. Like, oh, God told us we need to move. And so I was just like, oh, God tells us to do something. Of course we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, As I got older and like looking back and hearing more information, I was like, oh, so is God like CPS knocking on our doorstep and we need to get gone? Or is God the state president that wants to interview with you, interview like my parents because he might excommunicate them because he's hearing all this sketchy information about them or like it, it like the reasons for moving kept getting weirder as I heard them. But a lot of their decisions were blamed on God. Like I was praying this morning and I got this revelation that we need to do this. And you're just like, okay, yeah. Like God told you we're going to do it. But looking back, I'm like, you, it's okay. You could just say that you want to do something. Yeah. Even financial decisions, my parents would get a lot into like multi-level marketing and my dad would get into weird projects where he's like, we're going to take tires and turn them into fuel. Mm -hmm. And they always thought they were going to make lots of money. They were like, we're going to be millionaires. I remember one time when I was a newlywed, my mom came over and she's like, in two weeks, this deal is going to come through and we're going to have like $2 million or $4 million or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's nice, mom. Good for you. And like, my husband was like, what? You're going to have $4 million? Like, you're living in a a single wide trailer. Like, that's awesome. Like, he was like, so stoked for her and like, just like over the moon. And she left and he was like, 
why are you excited? Like, this is so cool. This is like really good for it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a month from now, it's going to be another thing. It's going to yeah. be a different thing that they're into. And it's just going to push it out. Like, oh, in two more weeks, something else. Or in two more weeks, another thing. A different deal. A different... So... So you're starting to see through this. When you go to college, you had mentioned that you went to the East Coast and your mom wasn't very happy about that because she was worried about you when the end times came. Is this when you started to, and you mentioned in college you had that realization, is this when you really started to question your way of life? Yeah. So I was married at 19. I was married super young. Okay. And that was hard for me. I thought I would be married older because I wanted to get like a PhD and like uh, serve a mission. I like was dead set on serving a mission, mm. but I met my husband and it was like, my intuition was like, this is your guy. And I was like, this is super confusing. <laughs> this is not the time of my life that I want to do this. My family had really idealized the thought of getting married young. And, um, I know of other people that were close friends and they really idealized that, especially for girls. So um, they were pretty cool and down with it. At first, they saw potential in me. They knew I wanted to get higher degrees. And there was a little bit of like conflict there in them and also in me. After I got married, I married this mainstream Mormon guy. I was very open with him, which I wasn't open with anyone else about my last day's beliefs. I was like, if you want to marry me, you got to see it all. Like I... I and I had this thought in the back of my mind, like the more I tell you, because it's true you're going to eventually believe it. Just like the gospel. Like the more you tell people about Mormonism, of course they're going to believe it because it's true. Duh. Yeah. It, and in my mind, it's like religion is as concrete and true as science. The more you educate someone on it, the more they'll understand the concept of gravity is a real thing. And it didn't quite <laughs> go that way with my husband. <laughs> he, it was like the more I told them, the more he thought I was like, didn't believe it. He thought I was crazy. He thought all of it was crazy. He still married me. Ironically, I don't, I don't know how <laughs> it was quite an adjustment for him. And for me, I started cracking like my shelf in the last day started cracking because my husband wasn't grow, growing into it, wasn't converting to it. And it made me start questioning it. At first, with my parents' stuff, I was just like, oh, yeah, like, they'll never follow through with stuff. That's fine. But the last day stuff is true. That's still going to happen. They might not look good now, but, like, someday they're going to just shine. Like, when all this happens, they've been preparing for this. They were made for that world. It's, they were, they've been preparing mentally and spiritually and everything. And they will be ready when the last day comes. And like, so that's kind of how I thought of it. But then after with my husband, I was just like, I, I don't know, more, it was more than my parents' uh, predictions and prophecies. My, my dad would have political prophecies like this, this leader is the Antichrist and he's going to make uh, ruin America and we're going to get attacked and all this stuff. Um, and they're all part of the Illuminati and stuff. Just like there was all this like behind the scenes stuff that my parents said was happening politically. Mm -hmm. So whenever they would prophesy like, oh, in two years, this will happen because of this leader or whatever, you would like look forward to that. But then they would have another one and they would push out the prophecies to the next time, to the next time. Then you would forget the last one and you'd be like so engrossed with the next one. 
So I started seeing that pattern before I met my husband. Mm. But then by the time I started trying to convert my husband and it wasn't working, that's when it started cracking in my head. Like, this isn't just my parents being crazy. This might be crazy. This might not be true. Yeah. And I remember getting really, really depressed from that. Um, you know, cause it was like my world belief, my, uh, my perspective was your identity. It was my identity. Yeah, for sure. So here I am going from being this badass that has this badass mission and going to college young and just impressing everyone all the time to being a stay at home mom, like at 19 or 20s when I had my, my first two kids, I had twins first. And it was like going from like a super big high, feeling like ultra important, feeling ultra driven by this like mission um, to like just not knowing what I'm doing with my life. Like just totally opposite, just feeling like the biggest loser. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like I could literally do this when I was like 13 because I, you know, started doing motherly things around the house when I was young. And it was like just such a huge hit to my ego. Like I I didn't know how to take it. And it was just depressing. Disconnecting from those beliefs. Like, as you said, my identity, I just, I struggle so much with it. And because I was depressed, I saw that as like Satan trying to get to me. Mm. <laughs> Cause uh, Satan was like a big, big thing in my household growing up. If, uh, if we were fighting with each other, it was cause we were choosing we were choosing to uh, serve Satan. We were choosing. Oh, wow. That's next <laughs> yeah, level. Like- I mean, I grew up with the whole Satan thing where Satan is trying to lead you astray, but that's next level. Oh, yeah. And it could be like for flicking your brother's ear. Like, oh, you're <laughs> choosing. You're choosing to follow Satan. Why are you choosing to follow Satan, Rachel? Like, oh, my God. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you're just like, as a kid, like, I'm choosing to follow Satan, like the worst person in the planet. Like, <laughs> I didn't mean to choose to follow him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lovely, huh? So I interpreted my depression as um, me choosing to follow Satan. And this all happened after having kids. So I had postpartum depression on top of like legit depression. And I'm like anti-doctor still. Like I was going to have my kids at home with my mom as my midwife. When I found out I was having twins, she's like, we need to get another midwife on board. And then the other midwife's like, this isn't legal in Arizona to have twins with a midwife. You have to have it in the hospital. And also you have to have it in the operating room is what I found out when I got a doctor, like just in case something goes bad because you're a high risk pregnancy because you are having twins. I had my babies on a cold operating table in a cold operating room. And it was like the opposite extreme of what I thought I was going to have. I still had them naturally, which like helps my ego because everything had to be natural and whatever. Mm. So I had my twins. I'm dealing with leaving the last day beliefs, um, these doomsday beliefs. And I had this thought, well, if that's not true, then like God's not true. Cause like my belief in God was like really, and Jesus was all like put on this last day's belief. Like that was the foundation and they were on top of it. And so then I got depressed even more. And I was like, well, this is a sign from Satan that 
God is true and Jesus is true. And so I need to stick to that. Like, I can't leave mainstream Mormonism. So like, I feel like I was like rebuilding my testimony in mainstream Mormonism from scratch. Uh, me and my husband, we were ward missionaries and he was teaching gospel essentials. And it was like refreshing for me to just like, okay, I'm going to start from scratch, start and build my foundation. I remember my core beliefs at the time were like love other humans and love God and Jesus. Like, and I was like, okay, I can stick to that because it was yeah. just so intertwined and so messy in my head that I was just like, I can't like, this is like all too much. So I try to stick to mainstream Mormonism and, um, then I had my third child, so my second pregnancy, and I had a C-section, which was like a huge blow to my ego because mm. here I am relying on modern medicine. She had turned like the day before I had her, so she was breech, and I was like insistent of having the breech baby because I was like so believed, believing and like all natural, and I don't care, and I will like breech babies are hard, hard on the mom, hard on the baby. Anyways, I ended up, my doctor wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't go through with that, that plan. And I had a C-section. And then from there we moved, we moved to Texas for six months and then Virginia. And my mom started freaking out about us moving. She was just like, you're not going to be in Arizona. And the Grand Canyon is the safe place. We're supposed to meet up in the Grand Canyon. Like my dad had visions and stuff. Like that was where we were going to be when the hard times started. Like when 9-11 happened, he called my mom that morning and he's like, just get ready. We might need to go to the Grand Canyon tonight. Like, just be ready. And I remember going to school and just like feeling like the state of like, okay, at any time we need to go. And I had a friend whose mom was like in LA and she was freaking out because she's like, what if the next place they hit is like LA? That's like a big city. Mm -hmm. And I was like super calm, like your mom's going to be okay. And like, I was super calm. I don't know, just because like, this is what I've been preparing for. Yeah. I was like so calm and like talking her through it and knowing that like, okay, we're going to leave and everything. Why the Grand Canyon? So... My dad and brothers hiked the Grand Canyon a lot and said that he saw like the foot uh, and footprints of a Nephite. Like he could see the bottom half of his feet leading him to this, this temple. And it was a Nephite temple. So what they, they go to and it was like deep in the Grand Canyon and it was this old structure and they felt like there was this like holy aspect and safe aspect there. Like, if the world goes crazy, no one's going to hike down into the the Grand Canyon on a, some off trail, on another off trail. Yeah. Like, we're going to be hella safe down there until things settle down just a bit. And then we need to move to where God wants us to be, which is eventually Missouri. Okay. I need to pop in here and let people know yeah. the significance of this. So in Mormon doctrine, they believe that... People sailed from Israel to the Americas and they settled the land of America and there were Nephites and Lamanites and the Lamanites are the ones that were cursed with dark skin and those are the Native Americans that we know of today. Uh -huh. So, <laughs> so 
the thing with Lamanites is they're supposed to be the cursed ones, right? And it's very problematic and super racist. And it was based on this mound builder myth. At least that's where we believe Joseph Smith got the ideas from in his time to write something like this into the Book of Mormon. And the Nephites, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know the Book of Mormon more than I do, that the Nephites were extinguished somehow, like all the, the white Indians were extinguished and they were left with just the wicked Lamanites. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And the Nephites were seen as uh, righteous because their light skin yeah. was like what made them uh, was their outward representation of their inner purity and righteousness, essentially. So is gross. how it was interpreted. I mean, you probably remember as kids, like seeing pictures of like Nephi, who all the Nephites came from, and uh-huh. he's like white and ripped, and he looks like just stellar. None of the paintings make sense in the Book of Mormon because <laughs> oh, yeah. also like they came from the Middle East, but somehow they're super white. Like none of it makes any sense. And it's totally logical. What are you talking about, Shalice? <laughs> <laughs> perfect sense. But his brothers, Laman and Lamuel, who the Lamanites came from, had dark skin and they have like gaudy jewelry. And like Nephi was like wearing like a sheep's wool and he was like humble, but sh- like hella strong. And like, yeah, I don't know. He so like, like Jesus. the Nephites were like the, the, the thing that we idolized, I, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah, finding a Nephite temple was way more holy than finding a Lamanite temple because that was like Satan worshiping over there. Lamanites were bad right. people right. for the most part. There was exceptions when some of them turned good, but oh my did last. <laughs> so what's going through your mind when your mom is saying, Rachel, you can't be on the East Coast because we're going to have to take cover in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. So I moved to Texas and then from Texas, I moved to Virginia. And so I'm on the East Coast. And my parents always told me that the East Coast would get hit the hardest when the last time days happened. The East Coast the and the West Coast, and also, ironically, Salt Lake, that Salt Lake would turn into a bloodbath. So oh. in her mind, yeah, because he needs to clean his house first is why Salt Lake and that area would be Wait, what? cleansed what do you first. Mean? So he's saying because Utah is so righteous and holds God's true church or temples or whatever, that would be wiped out first? My understanding of it was like all this, these last day calamities would help sift the wheat from the tares. So all the righteous Mormons that were actually living Mormonism the right way, aka like more orthodox, mm-hmm. would barely survive. Because they weren't as righteous as us, but they were righteous enough to survive. Oh. Now, the ones that were like Jack Mormons or appearing to live Mormonism, okay. but not really, they would just be gonzo. Wow. So they're taking out all the Mormons. <laughs> like, you, wow, you got to be the top of the top of the top of the Mormons in order to survive. Like, even if you're baptized, that doesn't mean you're safe. Yeah. I remember giving a really, really cringy, cringy lesson when I was in, um, I was in the singles ward. I was the first counselor in the Relief Society presidency. And I gave this lesson. It was supposed to be on the, the 10 virgins. And if you interpret it this way, this is how it could read that the whole church is the 10 virgins, everyone that's a member and only half of them are going to make it because only half of them are prepared. So like, I, I was like, turn to your left, turn to your right. 
one of those people won't make it. And maybe one of those people aren't you. Like, oh I know. Oh my cringy. gosh, you laid it on thick. And I'm trying to remember the 10 virgin story. Isn't it something to do with oil? Like some of them had enough oil to light their fire mm-hmm. or something? I don't really remember. Yes. Yes. So do you want me to tell a story? Yeah, tell a story. Is that- <laughs> okay. So there's these 10 virgins. It's uh, traditional for the Jewish culture for the virgins to have lambs and wait for the bridegroom. They're normally relatives or family members of his. And when the bridegroom comes out of his home, they walk with the bridegroom to the wedding and they have these lamps and oil that light the way. And the wise virgins brought oil with them, but the unwise didn't want to take the time to buy the oil ahead of time. They wanted to be there on time. By the time the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. They're, they didn't have extra oil to put in their lamps. So they had to rush and go get some and they missed the bridegroom. And it was kind of that story is symbolic of like, you need to be ready when Christ comes. You need to be spiritually ready, ready, prepared when he comes. And if you aren't, you're not going to be there when he comes. And I interpreted that as like, you will literally die. Like if you're not on God's side. Yeah. There's more involved in Utah. Like we lived in Southern Utah for a while in the mountains there. And um, someone had not my family, but someone else had visions about tent cities being there because people are finding refuge in these like high mountains because all this craziness is going on. My mom was very into all these uh, authors that wrote about the last days. And it was like they were piecing everything together. We even had like friends, family friends that were like, had the same roles as us. Like, so my dad was supposed to be like a military leader, but also a walker. And no, that's not like a zombie. He (laughs) imagined himself like having a vision and poofing down somewhere. And he called it poofing. I don't know. Like he just magically appeared somewhere and he asked people like, where am I? And they're like, you're here. And he's like, good. Okay. I'm going to take you to the safe place. And they're like, you don't even know where we are. (laughs) And like, he basically walked them to the safe place is how they saw it. And other people that we knew had these dreams and visions too, which was confusing for me when I was leaving it all. Cause I was like, wait, isn't that like, like if they're having it and it's coming from different sources, then it must be true. I don't know. It was, it was just a lot to get over. So let me clarify real quick. So your dad thought that in the last days, he would teleport around to these different places and then walk them to safety. Am I hearing that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Just wanted to make sure. That's very interesting. To kind of tie into that, when he finally passed away, um, I had not believed in it anymore. And so I go to his funeral and I'm like, see, this is evidence that the last days didn't start and none of his visions happened. Mm. I was like, like talking to my siblings about it, like, good, like we can get, we can move on with our lives. Like, this isn't true. Like, this is confirmation to myself that this isn't true. And one of my siblings was like, this means he's going to come like an angel. He's going to like manifest. Yeah, that's how he pops in there. It's because he's an angel. Like it was just like a huge confirmation to them in the opposite direction. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like you can't. Right. Like, I mean, I get it. Always going to confirm it. Right. That would make more sense that he could teleport as an angel, not an actual human. 
How old were you when he passed? How much time did you have to deconstruct those childhood beliefs before this? Um, I was 25. So I had my last child, so baby number four. And um, my mom and dad came to visit me when I had him. And um, he died a month later Mm. after I had him. And it was interesting when I got the news that he died... I, I had a lot of mixed emotions because he had really not been there for us. Like he couldn't hold down a job. He, even when he stayed at home, he never did anything to help cook or clean. Um, for me, it was like deconstructing, deconstructing all these beliefs was a lot. And so when he died, I was like relieved. I was like, Oh God, like I can now everything else I can just. A process all this going on and not get any more added to it like nothing more to process just what happened with him up to this point like is all I had to process and so yeah it was a big relief and I I felt so guilty that it was a relief like this isn't this shouldn't be my reaction when my parent dies like I should be brokenhearted but I wasn't I was like whoo like Good. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone can blame you for any type of reaction that you had because you went through so much as a child. And like you said, there's so much you were processing and deconstructing and it was a lot. And I'm sure that you do or did have strong feelings of love towards your father. But I can imagine being in that sort of mental state, constantly trying to figure things out, it would feel like a relief to drop it, to let it go. Did any of your brothers kind of pick up where he left off or the ones that were still believing that his way was the right way? So I just want to finish one thing from what you yeah, were saying before please. and then I'll answer that. Um, Tara Westover said something that really hit me strong when I was like processing this even years later. She said um, the hard thing about abuse because – it's kind of weird when people don't leave their abusers from the outside. You're just like, dude, you're, you're, he's hurting you emotionally. He's hurting you physically. Like, why are you here? Not that my dad was physically abusive to me. I just, um, he was very neglectful, I would say, and put us in really unsafe circumstances. So, um, she said the hard thing about abuse is that there is some love there. So yeah, that really hit me hard. Like, there, there was love there. There was goodness there. Like I owe my life. Like I wouldn't be alive if parents didn't bring me into this world. So I don't know. It's, it, it makes it more complicated. It makes it more tricky to heal from because yeah, there is love there. And if, if a person was all bad, like it would just be so easy to get over them and, and move on. But when there's a little bit of good there still, it just, it makes it heart wrenching. It makes it complicated. Yeah, I can totally relate. And I guess what I would just say is your feelings are valid. No matter which direction you go, it's important to honor the feelings and and allow yourself whatever things come up. And I'm sure you have. You seem like you've done a lot of work around that. I think feelings were hard to process at first. Um, especially when I first left, cause I was still in mainstream Mormonism mm-hmm. and I still held on to the belief that like 
bad feelings or negative feelings, I don't think of them as that now, came from Satan. Right. And good feelings and happy feelings came from God. Now I think of feelings as an appropriate response to anything that happens. Like, yeah. that's just it. That's how I see them now. Um, but I really labeled those feelings. And when I had bad feelings, it made me feel like I was doing something wrong. Maybe I wasn't in line with God. So it mm. that made it harder to process hard feelings. If yeah. you don't give yourself permission to really feel them because you feel like you're being a bad human if you do. Yeah. So with my family, I feel like it was very much carried on. Um, my brother kept trying to invest in things like my parents. And it was always just like, in two weeks, this will happen. In two weeks, this will happen. And I remember him saying like to his, to my sister, if you buy a house for me, then we'll buy a house for you or something like that. There was some like strategy Mm. behind it. But if you do all this, it's like building Zion and serving God. Cause we're all about building Zion. Like that's why we wanted to be in Missouri because that's where Zion would eventually be built for the millennium. Mm -hmm. That's why Missouri was so important to us and to all Mormons, like perpetuating this belief, really like getting deeper into it, researching the connections. Again, when, uh, Mormon leaders talk, they would just be all in like, what are they really saying behind all this? And what are they really meaning when they say this? And it was a lot. And I remember going to a therapist and talking to her about it, about my family and trying to like, I I don't have any terms for this, but this is what's going on. Like my dad was like this, but now he's passed away and my brother's like this. And like, you know, taking lots of words to describe it. And she's like, I think you were in a a family cult. And I was like, okay. Uh, Like I never, I never like thought of it that way. And she's like, yeah. And I think your dad saw himself as like the prophet of that cult. And I was just like, well, yeah, that he's had visions and dreams. Okay. That makes sense. Like that tracks and you can't say bad things about the the leader. And my mom also, like if I felt like we could never process anything bad they did like it always had to be turned uh, a way that you interpreted their actions as good and that's a very cult-like mindset never speak illy of the leaders yeah um and sacrifice for them and and um yeah it it was a lot to take in the first time she told me that, i was just like i never thought of it this way and wow that's a lot in cult structures, there's also these things that the, I don't know, this isn't a technical term, but it's called flying monkeys. Mm-hmm. So as I stopped believing, I felt like other siblings were flying monkeys for my parents. Like they would bring information back to them or I would be a flying monkey for my parents telling them like, Hey, my sister's not going to church anymore or whatever. Or this is what's going on. Like it felt like we were pitted against each other like siblings like we kept each other in check Mm -hmm. and like if one of us stepped out of line we would like get on them and also it would always come back to the leaders our parents yeah so it was hard seeing like my brother perpetuate those beliefs because I had I had grown out of them and I kind of in my head I had really placed him as the authority in it how was it for your husband and I'm trying to get a grasp on when you had your children. 
I assume you lived in a house that did have electricity and running water and modern conveniences. Did you at that point kind of reflect back on your own childhood or were you trying to continue the traditions that you had for your own kids? Oh, I think it was a little bit of both. Because when you're so ingrained in something, you're perpetuating it even though you don't realize you are. So, but I really, the things I was conscious of, I, I was trying to stop, um, for the most part, it was hard for him. I think he's a stronger personality too. And so when my dad was like, when the last days happen, you report to me, he was like, oh, hell no. This is also another little side story, but like, he was very like, you are my partner. Like, I don't want to go life alone. I want you here. And like, before that, I feel like around men, I would dumb down anything I said. I would try not to look like I'm the decision maker or the authority on anything because it's a sign of respect to mm-hmm. basically be stupid for men. And he was like, oh, hell no. I want you to be as smart as you are. I want you on my side. Like, we are in this together. And I was like, no, but the temple, the temple says that, like, I report to you. This is chain of command. Like, God, you, me. Like, yeah, I... I was very like gun ho and like believing that I was a second class citizen, essentially, not without saying those words, but like, I felt like I was being more righteous by being respectful of his authority. Yeah. Submitting. And on top of it, like before we were married, I took a marriage class that was offered in my ward and the, the leader of the class was kind of very traditional patriarchic like. And so the material he gave us was that way. It was a lot of Christian material that was very respect your husband. I think I, I read that book, Love and Respect, as part of the class. I read like five or 10 books, basically all confirming like patriarchism. And I was like all in. And my dad was very patriarchic. And I was like, I know this. Like, this is my jam. I'm cool. yeah. I totally can be the best perfect wife ever. And I will submit to you. Anyways, my husband was like, bull crap. I call bull crap. <laughs> and I was like, but the temple, it says it. Like, it's true. It has to be true. And he basically told me, like, I don't care that the temple says that. We're not doing that. And eventually, I think it will change. And I was like, okay, cool. I I'm down. Like, it. I don't want to feel like a piece of crap. <laughs> yeah, my husband is super great. <laughs> I I appreciate him so much. And spoiler alert, it did change that temple language. <gasps> it did. I know. <laughs> After I left it, it was a relief though. I was just like, oh, yes. Good riddance to that. <laughs> it, I mean, even the first time I went through the temple and they were like, basically, you're going to commit to submit to your husband. I was like, okay, like I, I'm down for that because that's what I already knew was going to happen. Like yeah. my dad would always talk about this all the time. And I was like, this is just how it is. I need to be ready to submit my, to my husband. I need to be ready to be a plural wife. Like, and, and inside of me, I was like, I'm going to be the favorite wife though. I'm going to be such a cool, <laughs> submissive wife that he's going to love me more than all the other wives. And <sighs> it's going to be the best of the worst situation ever. <laughs> Anyways, all that saying that my husband and my dad were like, uh, a movable object. Up against an unstoppable force. They just like very much clashed. Yeah. And, um, also my brother that perpetuated my dad's beliefs, they clashed hard too. And I think it was just cause like my husband was just so protective of me. He saw my dad still taking advantage of me, even as after I was married, like I would serve him at family gatherings. I would rub his feet. I would like, mm. 
I was a good daughter and uh, he was just like, you're pregnant. No, <laughs> like this is dumb. No, you're not going to do that. You're not going to be involved in the service project or whatever. You're not yeah. like, he, he just like really stood up for me when I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't have the ability to stand up for myself. Wow. I love so much that he was your number one advocate. And if you are watching, which you probably will be, hats off to you, sir. Well done. Talmadge, you are amazing. (laughs) Yes. And now I want to talk about how the tables turned a little bit because then you were the one that stepped away from mainstream Mormonism and he was kind of like, I don't know about this. So let's go through your deconstruction. So we barely scratched the surface on how you started to rebuild your faith in mainstream Mormonism, let go of the doomsday survivalist mentalities, and then walk us through when you actually started to realize that this was harming you. Okay. So since I, I think I have spiritual OCD, scuporosity, I think is what it's called. So whatever I do like in that area, well, in other parts of my life, I'm going to like go full on, like 100%. So when I rebuild my Mormonism, mainstream Mormonism beliefs, I'm going to like do it to the letter of the law, to the T. I'm going to be like stellar. <laughs> like, so I did it. I, I felt like that's what I was doing. Like, and I had all the callings and did all the things. And my husband had all the callings and did all the things. Like he was a seminary teacher and first counselor and the bishopric. And I've served in Relief Society and primary and never in young women's. Probably they knew that I would destroy them because of my messed up childhood. So oh my God. That I, didn't. <laughs> I, I mean, you heard that lesson that I gave in Relief Society. So. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I have to clarify for people who aren't familiar uh, the things that she mentioned. So Relief Society is a group of women that it was actually organized in Joseph Smith's time because Emma wanted to be important. So it's where all of the adult women gather and they have lessons specific to them. And then the priesthood meetings, that's where all the guys gather. And then Young Women's is where all of the Young girls ages 12 to 18 gather and have their own lessons. And primary is for under 12, all the little babies. So they basically compartmentalize all these groups of people in Sunday in Sunday school or uh, at church. So there's different lessons that you break into. It's not like most Christian churches where everyone just shuffles into a room. They hear from a pastor, music, concert for Jesus or whatever type of style they do it. And then everyone leaves. You go in. Usually there's sacrament. After you do the whole thing together. Yes. Yes. So there is an all together part, which is called sacrament meeting, where you go into the main chapel and you take the sacrament, which is the bread and the water. And then there's a few talks not given by a preacher. There is no designated pastor or preacher. The members of the church actually are assigned to give talks, usually like two to six minutes long. Maybe there's a musical number. Uh, Usually there are at least two, maybe three hymns that everybody sings. But just to give you an idea, it is very quiet, reverent. Even certain musical instruments are not allowed. If there's a musical number, it's piano or strings or maybe acoustic guitar. Maybe, maybe. But there's no clapping at the end. It's very reverent. And then you break off into your different groups. So what Rachel is saying is both her and her husband had a calling, which means 
somebody prays and or just decides, hey, they should be they should do this. So everything is volunteer based. You should be the person who sits at the library and checks out these lesson plans to people. You should be the person who opens the doors for sacrament meeting and says hello to people. You should be the person who leads the music during the, the musical hymns and you should be the people who teach the classes. So when you hold a calling, it's kind of a big deal because when you get to be in the teacher realm, it means they believe in you enough to teach the classes and to learn the lessons and be engaging. And you're basically seen as really righteous if you hold a calling like that. So I just want to put in pr into perspective how both of them were at the top of the, the ward list, as you would say, the congregation list for doing everything that they were supposed to be doing. Okay, continue. Yeah. And I... I considered myself a scholar. I was a seminary class president. I was always the first ones to memorize every scriptures. Like I probably could name off a couple right now. Like they were just like ingrained in my head. Yeah. I was what I considered a scholar. So I, you know, was like, I'm going to do this all in Mormonism a hundred percent. So as I dived deeper into Mormonism, I decided like, I'm going to have a good relationship with Christ. Like he, I'm going to see him as a friend and not as like this person that I just like adore and bow down to. Like, I'm going to see him as an equal. Um, because before that I had, after I left the last day stuff, I have a, I had horrible relationship with Christ because I was just like, how dare you be so perfect? And I can't be cool anymore because I'm a big loser now. And, oh. um, <laughs> so I, I was like, okay, I need to really rebuild that. And so I really tried to do that. And, um, I would get in gospel discussions with like my mother-in-law. And I think that my view of Christ was like different than hers and hers would always reflect what the scriptures actually say. And here's an example. If I was God, if I was Christ, if I was a father and like my kid died, he wasn't good in this life. And he went to the lowest degree of the afterlife. So mm -hmm. in, in Mormonism, you have celestial, celestial, terrestrial. Like if they went to terrestrial kingdom or outer darkness, which is like hell for Mormons, I think that since you have eternity, eventually he would progress out of hell, out of celestial. Eventually they would progress and learn just like when you're on earth, you'll progress through the different grade levels. Like, and if you didn't pass sixth grade the first time, oh, well, like retake sixth grade, you'll eventually get it. I was like, if, it, if there was a loving God, like we wouldn't stay forever in one segment place because eternity is a long time. It's yeah. A long time. Like, what are you going to do? Stick, stay at the top of the, that level that you're stuck in? Because that's kind of the belief behind Mormonism that you're stuck in these levels. And she showed me a scripture that confirmed that belief. Nope, nope. Once you get to that, like, once you're stuck in that kingdom, you're stuck in there forever. Like, there's no progressing out of it. Yeah. And um, I was just like, no, I don't care if the scriptures say that. I don't believe that. Like, that's BS. Like, if he's a loving God, which is what Mormonism presents him as, a loving God would not create a reality that this... I don't, he wouldn't do this to his children. I have to jump in because... That's where I have to laugh when we talk about the wars in heaven and the pre-existence and 
it was Satan's plan that we come down and everyone does a good job. There's no free will, but everyone will for sure make it back. And that's the one that was like, no, Satan, you're the worst guy. I'm going to damn you to hell or outer darkness or wherever or to the earth where you can tempt everyone that made the right choice. I just think it's so funny that that's the one that is the wrong plan and seen as the worst plan, <laughs> according to Mormonism. Like help, helping them. Yeah, like better. making yeah. sure that they make it back to heaven, which, yeah, coercion, we all know I'm against that. But I just think it's funny in the grand scheme of things that we worship or Mormons worship the God and the Jesus that says, no, I'm going to send everyone down. It's going to be an awful time. And maybe they make it back. Maybe they don't. But I'm cool with it. It's like, what? That's crazy. Seriously. And I I also believed that like the people that followed Satan, that one third of the host of heaven or whatever, um, I believed that they would eventually progress out of that. And I was very outspoken about that. I remember a guy came to me in the temple in the celestial room after like a session and he was like, you're the most like sweet, charitable person I know to believe that, but you're wrong. And I'll tell you why. And I was just like, uh, I still don't believe it. Like that, that's BS. Like why would, no, I just don't believe that that's what kind of God I worship. And if it, that's the kind of God we worship, then we're worshiping a really crappy God. Like, yes, that's not cool. So is that what eventually got you to start thinking, maybe I don't want to worship a God that sees things like that? Yeah, I think I was still like all in 100%. But like, things like this kept coming up. And in like, Sunday school, so Sunday schools where the men and the women combine as adults, and also the youth combine as kids. I mentioned that earlier, like teenagers will combine together. Um, So in the adult Sunday school, I would say things because I was I thought of myself as a scholar, I thought of myself (laughs) as like a know it all and whatever. I would say things and then it was like a crickets would happen. And I was like, that was like a really cool comment. Come on, people. Yeah. And then someone from like an ex state president or a bishop, ex bishop or current bishop or someone with more authority would say the exact same thing, but with more dryness and more boringness and, and the, I thought a less interesting way. And everyone would just be like, wow, that was so profound. Oh my gosh. And I would just be sitting there like, you know, having this husband that didn't believe I was a second class citizen. Yeah, he encouraged you to speak out. Yeah. And like seeing all this like sexism at church all the freaking time, I was just like, I can't like this. is it, It started to wear on me a lot. Yeah. I think when I first left the last days, I planted a seed in my mind that this all couldn't be true. And I think I tried so hard to convince myself that it was. Just living with that cognitive distance for a really long time can wear on someone. It was like I was constantly trying to prove to myself that it was or tell myself that it was or uh, I don't know. It just became overwhelming. And I had close friends and a sister that had left and they were like a huge support to me because I was just like, I can't take this anymore. I started getting, well, not started. I continued to be depressed uh, this whole time, especially around when I had things that correlated the church to me, like around Saturday night, Sunday's coming. I started getting depressed after church. I'm exhausted, like laying on the couch, 
putting on a church appropriate movie, of course, for my kids to watch as I like lay there like a zombie because it's like overwhelming me to the max. And I don't know what's going on. I'm not processing any of this because like, again, that's serving Satan (laughs) to have these bad feelings and stuff. It, it got so dark though that I started getting suicidal, like around the time that I, Sunday would roll around or when I would see family members that were really strong members in the church and I would associate the church with them. Um, it was like anxiety, suicidalness. We probably should put a trigger warning in this whole video because of all this. Sorry. I'm just realizing okay. this now. Um, it, it just was really, really heavy and. I had knew, known some of this stuff uh, in church history. Like, I knew Joseph Smith had several wives. I was taught it as a teenager. Like, oh. all of that was, like, not a big deal to me because I, as a teenager, I will be starred. I don't care how cringy it is. Like, it's true. So it has to be true. Like, um, it was just, like, God's method of getting there wasn't always perfect. But God's always right. And this is always true. And this is God's church. And blah, blah, blah. And so... Some of those things started catching up to me, though. I started examining them and being like, eh. Like, one time we were reading Saints, which is a church-issued book um, about the history of the gospel written by the church or someone that was hired by the church. I don't know. It's church-issued. So we're reading it to our kids because we're this good Mormon family, me, my husband, and our kids. We have scripture study every day. Even when COVID happened, we had a sacrament every Sunday. My husband was broadcasting it because he was in the, the um, bishopric and stuff like that. And like, we were just doing all the right things. Anyways, according to the church, we're reading saints and we were reading the account where Joseph Smith said that he has to practice polygamy or else he'll be slain by an angel with a sword or he was threatened by an angel with a sword with his life. Like, he had to do this. Like God told him to. And if he didn't, then he would kill him essentially. And I knew this story. I knew this story from when I was a teenager. Like it wasn't, it was old hat to me, but it was like, I heard it again for the first time. And I was just like, well, that's like, doesn't seem very godlike. Here he is condemning Satan for, for wanting us to follow him and force us into choosing the right. But that's taking away his agent, Joseph Smith's agency right. to make the right choice. Like, good he's, point. He's willing him into it. He, he's backing him into a corner. There's no other choice but polygamy. Yeah. And then I was like, hmm, this polygamy thing, there's probably more to it. And I started diving deeper into it. And I was just like, oh, I struggled with polygamy so much because that in my mind was coming back and I needed to be ready for it. And I talked to my husband a lot about it. And he, I remember him telling me like, I don't care if it comes back, but I don't want to practice it. And I can say no. Mm. That gave me so much reassurance. I was like, okay, good. Like yeah. I don't want to be second part. I'm, I'm down for that. But he's like, dude, I only love you and I don't want to marry another woman. Like that seems like, no, I'm not down. And he, I remember him saying like, any guy that wants that, has an alternative motive. Like they're not a good guy. Like they can't want that. And so I'm like, how is Joseph Smith a good guy? And yet he practiced it and it made it the history. When you look at it from like a mainstream Mormonism standpoint, it made it seem like Joseph Smith is such a righteous guy. And he did this 
because he had to. Like, right. he was forced into it. Like, it, poor Joseph. Like, oh, he just has to sleep with all this women. Right. That's oh. so hard on him. Oh. <laughs> Man, that guy had to go through so much to prove his devotion to God. Like, yeah. oh. But it just, it just didn't add up. Like, I knew that he had married young teenagers. I knew all this. And, and it's like it finally clicked in my head. And I was so tired of feeling like a second class citizen at church because, uh, you know, people are like, uh, mansplaining everything to me, mansplaining yeah. the gospel to me. <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, I know it. I know it better than you. Yeah. Um, because I was so arrogant, of course. Anyways, so that it just started wearing on me. And I was telling my friends this and they're like, Rachel, what if you didn't go to church for a Sunday? And I was like, I just, I, it's like a, such an ingrained habit reaction. Like you get up on, on Sunday, you go to church. Like Mm -hmm. you dress your four kids, you look the part, you do the thing. That's, it's like, and like I said, I had only missed four sacrament meetings in my whole entire life. That's impressive. Oh, oh. And some of those were because I had children, like literally bringing newborn babies to church during like the worst time to be exposing them to adults like during you know the winter season not a good season to like but I was like dude one week off and I'm back to church because I'm I'm righteous I'm like stellar that's what I do (laughs) that's who I am so I took a Sunday off at church I had so much anxiety from <laughs> it. It was a state conference, so like I thought, you know, okay. no one's gonna notice. No one's gonna it notice. Won't be so bad. <laughs> and I like went for a hike because I really didn't know what to do with myself, and I was just like, ah, all the anxiety. <laughs> like, but by the end of the day, I didn't feel as bad as I felt before. Like I wasn't in this mopey, heavy blanket vibe of a human. <laughs> like yeah. I was a real human. <laughs> it felt good. <laughs> And uh, so the next Sunday I took off and I was like cleaning the house. I think we were moving from one apartment to another and like, you know, just cleaning up and stuff, getting ready for the move. And my mother-in-law came to visit me and she's at the time was the Relief Society president. And she, she's like a stalwart member. She's as Mormon as it gets. Like she's serving a mission right now in Tonga. Like, okay. Yes. That is as her husband's a (laughs) dentist and they're doing like a service mission. And yeah. For people who don't know, normally you go on a mission when you are younger. So 18, 19, 20, 21, they kind of like ship you off the second you graduate high school. But when, if you go on a mission as an adult, that's like, top tier Mormonism. Those are the ones that are really righteous and are really willing to serve the Lord. How to throw that in there. Yeah. Like, and she has a lot of grandkids, like about 30 and she's like going across the world. And like, she's, she's like the ideal, what I would say like the ideal Mormon woman is like, she's an amazing mother, an amazing grandmother, like so sweet, so thoughtful. My own parents wouldn't give me birthday cards or gifts, but she would. Like she was like the mother I never had, like, you know, like actually listened to me and stuff. Cause you know, I was my parents' therapist. I wasn't there. I, I never saw them as my parental figures after a certain age. Yeah. Um, so she was like my replacement mom. And I would always say like, she's a saint of a human. Like she's just, like what you thought a Mormon, what woman should be, 
not aggressive, not loud, like sweet, doesn't want the limelight, like everything that you would think a good Mormon woman should be. Anyways, she came to visit me. I think she was like coming in from a trip from the airport. And so um, everyone was still at church. So it was just me and her. And she's like asking me like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I, I actually think I feel better. Isn't that, isn't this weird? Like, this is crazy. Like, I think I actually feel better. And her reaction was like, hand on her heart, like shocked, like, like what? You, you, you can't feel better. And background also for her, her husband had left the church and she had remarried this really great guy. Um, Well, that was more recently. She married this guy that's LDS and strong in the church. But like, that was a huge divide between her and her husband. Both great people. Like my father-in-law, awesome guy. Love him to death. Like he's been so helpful after leaving the church. Like shout out to you, Larry. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, so she was just shocked because she had, I think put so much stock into being at church, going to church. Like there's so much emphasis on this. This is your salvation. Don't leave this. Like literally broke up her relationship because it was this, the church was more important to her than, than family. It's the most important thing. And, um, it was that shock on her face that I was actually doing better, not going to church that really like sank in. And I was like, Oh my gosh, they don't care if I kill myself. Mm-hmm. Like the church doesn't care. They'd rather me quote unquote, get to the celestial kingdom and live like this cookie cutter Mormon life. It just like, sorry, getting all worked up here. That's okay. <laughs> it just solidified in my head. Like they don't care about my mental health. They don't care that if I, I kill myself. Like if that, cause that's, where I felt like it was, I was going like either I would kill myself or I would stop going to church. Cause that's the options I, I felt like I had, like there was so much, just so much depression around it and just rough and me being hard on myself, me pushing myself to be perfect, me pushing myself after she left. I kind of was like pondering that. And I realized I was like, maybe this thing that I thought was the medicine is what is making me sicker. Like the church is actually maybe a poison. And the more I take it, the more I think it's going to make me better. I'm going to get better. It's going to help this. And it just kept making it worse and worse. And like just pushing me deeper and deeper. And I would take more of it to get out of it. Like this is, this is the medicine. It's going to heal me. It's going to get me out of this. And it, had an adverse effect. And when I just stopped taking it, I realized the profound effect it was having on me, just, you know, being away from it a bit and just being like, oh, actually without this, I think I'm getting better. Mm-hmm. This is weird. Like this, it was wow. just a lot to, to grapple with. That is so incredibly heartbreaking that you had to go through that and you felt like you didn't have any options. And the fact that you also weren't really feeling supported from outside sources. And I want to get to your husband in a second, but that must have felt so isolating and scary because also to add some context, as someone who grew up Mormon, you're told that church is your happiness. Church equals happiness. If you don't go to church, 
you won't be happy. If you don't hold a calling, if you don't check all the boxes, if you don't follow all of the rules, you won't be happy. And so that would put you, Rachel, in a really hard situation because you are doing all of those things and you're unhappy. And so it wouldn't make sense to you, just to give our listeners more context, it wouldn't make sense for you to remove the things that are supposed to give you happiness in order to be happier. It would it, it doesn't make any sense. So when you were able to not go to church and feel some sort of relief, I can only imagine how confused you must have felt. Yeah. And for years, I think I just pushed it more. Like I just tried harder. I just was more devout. I'd go to the temple once a week. I would do more, more, do, do more, be more, try harder. And yeah. it just kept getting worse and worse, like spiraling out of control. Yeah. After this Sunday that you didn't go and you felt some sort of relief, did you stop going right away? Did you kind of pepper in church every now and then to kind of test what what it was that was affecting your your depression? Yeah, when I had that realization that it was making things worse, it was like I couldn't even bring myself to drive on the property of the church. Like I couldn't even oh. drop my kids off at young men's or young women's. It was like, I don't know. Like I just, it, I haven't been back to a single Sunday after that. I've had like nieces and nephews leave for missions. And I mean, I want to go, I want to support them. It's hard to yeah. be on a mission and you want your family there behind you, but I, I just can't bring myself to do it. Like it's, um, which is also really weird for me because I'm normally the type of person that will force myself to do anything. And um, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it. Yeah. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. And it's really important that you're able to set boundaries for yourself and your own mental health because it doesn't sound like that's something you've ever done for yourself in the past. So just being able to, number one, recognize that there's an issue, but number two, set a boundary for yourself so that you are putting your needs first is huge. And so I, I'm sure you feel the guilt of not being able to support your family members because that's also something that we've been trained to feel. It's, I don't think it's inherent. I think it's something that we were conditioned to believe about ourselves if we couldn't make it to church or if we couldn't do any of the things they're asking of us. So I know that it's a difficult emotion to let go of, but just know that it's okay that you're not going because your mental health is more important than them seeing another familiar face in the crowd. They have their support. You need to focus on you and what makes you happy. Yeah. And and although like I, I see what you're saying, at first, that was a hard thing to comprehend because at yeah. first when I left, I, I thought of it as like, oh, I just couldn't cut it. It was me that was a problem. It was something about me made it poison, but everyone else it's medicine for. Like, sure. I, I just couldn't cut it. I could just couldn't hack, like, which was really discouraging. Like, I, I felt horrible and I thought I was the bad person or someone that stops being a member of the church is like seen as the epitome of like the worst human being on the planet. Yeah worse than people who were in the church all of your life because we were taught that if you believed it at one time and then stopped believing, 
then you are denying the Holy Ghost. And that means you would go to outer darkness or hell. So here I am going from what I think would qualify me for the top of the top degree of heaven, the celestial kingdom, the highest degree of the celestial kingdom to, oh, I'm, I'm qualifying myself for hell. Like, yeah, such a, a polarizing shift from the best to the worst. Yeah. How long has it been since you've stopped going to church? I think three, three years. So it's, it's a good amount of time, but it's also still pretty fresh. Now that you've had some space between you and the church, are you able to look back at what you believe was causing all this anxiety and this depression from a practical standpoint? For example, was it all of the pressure of being a good mom or a perfect mom? Was it the pressure of going to the temple or the pressure of knowing all the things you're supposed to know? Are you able to kind of connect those dots and pinpoint what it was that was causing you so much harm? Yeah, I think I was trying to prove to my parents that mainstream Mormonism was true and that the last days wasn't just through my example. Like, see, if you keep adding Mormonism to your life, it's it's the picket fence life. It's the good life. Like what we didn't have as kids, I can now have this perfect family life because I'm following this belief. Mm. This is the, this is the true church, not that. See, like I'm doing it right. You're not. It was just me trying to convince, well, them and myself, like this is right. See, Rachel, the last date stuff, not right. But this, this is the right way of seeing it all. Yeah, that makes sense. And I personally know a lot of the problematic history with the church and all of the shenanigans it's been up to, but I'm wondering because I'm sure if an active Mormon were to watch this, and if you are watching Hello, you're probably thinking, so you had a bad experience at church. So you had a bad experience because you were trying to prove this to your family, but the church is still true and you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So they like to say many times in the comments, what would you say to that person who thinks that you just made the worst mistake? Yeah, I think for me... After leaving, I thought it was really weird looking back on testimony meetings. Like, why are we so insistent that the church is true? Like, the sky is blue, but I'm not insistent that the sky is blue. <laughs> I'm not going around saying, hey, Shalise, did you know the sky is blue? I believe that it's blue, and I know that that's true. And if you don't believe that, you're screwed. Like, no. I And so if it's true... If it's true, then why are we so insistent? Yeah. And trying to convince someone of the truth of like the last days, convincing my husband and seeing for the first time that that wasn't right. I had a huge shift, like a huge paradigm shift. And so when I had a paradigm shift with the Mormon church and realizing, hey, maybe this isn't right, maybe... I'm trying too hard to convince people that, including myself, that it's right. Uh, That paradigm shift happened again. But this time, I think I was more ready for it because I was just like, oh, I've been through this. I know how to do this. I'll do it again. I mean, I I say I was more ready for it, but it still was freaking hard. Yeah. Yeah, you had to deconstruct twice. But I can imagine that since you already had been through it, you could be a little bit more 
more of a critical thinker as far as, well, I've been wrong once before. Maybe there's a chance that I'm wrong again. And I think that's such a healthy way to look at life in general, even if you haven't been in a cult. Uh, But all of us have fallen for something at some point in time, even if it's just giving ourselves over to someone who is culty in nature. Maybe they're narcissistic or they have unhealthy power dynamics over us. I think it's okay to always keep our eyes open and say, I could be wrong. I think that's the most honest way of living is, yeah, I lean towards this belief, but I could be wrong and that's okay. And we don't have to be right because no one knows what the right answer is. We can speculate. We can have warm and fuzzies about it, but (laughs) we can't really know. And with that in mind, if you're comfortable sharing, I would love to get a sense of where you've landed. What's your your consciousness, part of your story, your awareness, your belief system, or whatever it is that makes sense to you. Yeah. So I remember one time going to the grocery store after I left mainstream Mormonism. And I remember, because in Mormonism, it's very us and them. Like we have the truth, everyone else doesn't. And that was also my mindset with the last days, like us I know more than even mainstream Mormons Mm -hmm. and we, I have the truth. My family has the truth, but they don't. I had to leave that mentality a bit with my parents, but then leaving that mentality even more, I went to the grocery store. I'm like looking around at everyone around me and just thinking like, Oh my gosh, I love humans. Like before that, I kind of hated being around other people, like family parties. I couldn't wait for them to be over. Um, just big groups was hard for me. Being at church was hard for me, and which is a big group. And um, I just was like, wow, like I love humans. Like humans are actually like interesting and full of life, and they're not all wrong. Like they're just doing their best. My heart was like so open, and I just like oh. felt this like possibility and hope of life, and this like I don't know, just freeness that I didn't have to live up to expectations and we could just live. And also there's no guarantee of the next life. Like nothing's set in stone. We don't remember what happened before we came here. So who knows like what would happen after I just found a beauty in life. Like, dude, this is my one, one shot at life. Let's make the most of it. Like let's make it beautiful and wonderful instead of like, living for the next life, living for all these reward points in heaven, I could like live for now. That, that was mind blowing to me. I could live for today. Wow. I I just don't even comprehend this because always was like working towards something like the last days, preparing for the last days, working towards that. And then in mainstream artism, you're preparing for a celestial kingdom. You're working towards that. And it was just kind of like, wow, the, I don't have to work towards something, which is kind of depressing. That's why like narcissism and grandiosism and all that stuff is like so interesting and why people are sometimes drawn to these like kind of people. They have motives, they have purpose. And like, you kind of lose that when you lose Mormonism. Like mm-hmm. you're like, now what do I do? I remember telling my friend before I uh, left, like I-, I need something else to step onto. Like, I, I don't have anything. Like, if I lose, if I stop going to church, if I lose Mormonism, I don't have anything to go to. I can't get rid of it because I need to build something else. But 
the beautiful thing I found, maybe I could just be me, which was shocking because <laughs> like, I didn't know who that was because I felt like I was told who I was for yeah. so long and trying to live up to someone's version of me that being me was like mind blowing. I was like, how does me walk as me? How does me form words out of my mouth? Yeah. Like, this is so weird. Yes. Um, but it's gotten beautiful. The more Mormonisms in the rearview mirror of my life, the more I find the beat of my own drum inside of me and I find a vitality inside of me and a hope and a genuine like joy and sadness and realness and everything like everything feels more like I I am living my life like this is me living my life and it's so much more profound it's so much more me it's so much more human I just like see other humans for who they are too more than I did before not what they should be not the potential they have how much more they should change just like oh that this is you too you are you are you yay (laughs) (laughs) oh I love that so much what you're describing is what I talk about all the time on this channel and it is the definition of high control group when you're explaining, okay, but if I don't have Mormonism, what do I have? Like what goes in that hole? What fills that spot in my life? And then realizing, oh, I can just exist. I don't have to hold a calling. I don't have to have all these extra jobs that I need to do for the church. I don't have to be constantly striving for perfection. I can just be And that is so beautiful when you can just stop and sink into yourself and discover yourself and see people for who they are. And I'm just paraphrasing everything you've already said because I just love it. But it's just so awesome that you've been able to recognize that and find something that makes you truly happy. Your gospel is being present. And that's amazing because I... Nobody knows, as I mentioned before, nobody knows what's on the other side. Nobody knows what the answer is. But what we do know is we are here right now in the flesh and we can either take advantage of that or we can live our life for something that we don't know is ever going to happen in the next life. So I love that so much. Before we go, I want to make sure because I'm sure people are going to ask, how are your kids doing? Because... I'm sure they were old enough to kind of know what was happening during the transition. And people are probably going to want to know how they felt about you. And then eventually your husband also leaving Mormonism. Yeah, I think I should start with my husband because I think that would make more sense in my timeline. Before I left, I would kind of have these moments where like, I'm like, what if I just pack the car and I leave? And I changed my name and I leave my husband and my kids because I didn't feel like I could leave Mormonism and they would keep me. Like Mm. I thought that especially coming into the marriage being such a strong devout Mormon, it would be unfair to ask him to stay with me if like, that's not what he signed up for. And I, Because I was depressed, I thought like, oh, they would be better off with him anyways. So I should just leave. I should just sit here. And um, that is not what happened when I left, thank God. Um, So 
as I'm not going to church, my husband's in his calling, his bishopric calling, and he's in a bishopric meeting, a leadership meeting with all the leaders. And in that meeting, he's looking up underwear on Amazon because he knows how cringe I am at everything Mormon is. Mormon and how it affects my mental health. Like he sees that I'm depressed and he knows. So we, I stopped wearing my garments, which are like the Mormon magic underwear. Yeah. And uh, so he, he was still wearing his at the time and he was like, Oh, like I see how much this affects her. And he, he just loves me so much. She's such a sweet guy. So he, like he orders them when he should not be ordering them like <laughs> during a leadership meeting in Mormonism, but he's just like, this will help my life. And I, I feel like that's just like an example of like how much he loves me. Yeah. He still wanted to be devout though. So he still went to church and I tried to support him because I was like, dude, I know what I signed up for. Like, this is, this is who you are. You're good with this. And with the kids, I, I felt all this guilt after realizing how much it was harming me. And finally, I had a conversation with them and I was like, hey, guys, uh, we were like going on, on a hike and I just like let them know, like, I I know that this won't make sense to you, but I feel all this guilt that I really pushed this on you, Mormonism and living this way because I see how it's affecting me so adversely and I'm I'm seeing it as not true now. And that's like not fair to you guys. Like here I am flipping the script on you and like, I'm so sorry. Like this is a lot for you to take in. It's like telling someone that Santa Claus is absolutely true and then you find out it's not. And I'm like, or maybe they still believe Santa Claus and I'm saying he's not. And I'm like, I get that this is confusing to you and so much to take in at your age and I just told them how sorry I was, like, I'm sorry that this is happening. And at the time, I just thought, like, I'm the problem. So, like, I felt all those guilt. and like, sorry, kids. Like, I wish I could have been better, stronger. I'm so sorry. It definitely caused them to start asking questions. So my daughter was talking to me one day about Joseph Smith. And I was like, oh, yeah, his 20-something if wife was blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I was just talking to her about church history. Not trying to like push her one way or the other. I've always tried to be a very open book with my kids and not just church stuff, but like sexuality and whatever they want to talk about. I, I'm open for the discussion. I'm open to whatever they, I, I don't think anything is taboo. Mm-hmm. And so we got to talking and she, I guess it never clicked to her that Joseph Smith had so many wives. And like, she said that was the instance that she's like, Oh, I'm gone. Like this is, this guy's a creepo. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, no, I'm good. Oh, wow. So she stopped going to church religiously. Uh, I think she's been back a couple times with like cousins and stuff like that. So then the next uh, issue that came up was like my son. I left in June and my son was turning eight in August. Mm. So he was looking forward to baptism. Like he was like, I want this person to speak. I want this friend to be here. Like all his friends oh. have been baptized. All of their social structure, my kids' social structure, are at this point mainly Mormons. And um, so he's like gung ho about it. And he's just such a social kid. The majority of his decisions or pushing his decisions are socially related. Like, I want my friends to be here. I want friend this mm. kind of environment. I was like, I think that you're making this decision based off of not because you believe it's true, but because of like your friends. And 
I, I was struggling with it, like, okay, how am I going to go into this church building yeah. and attend my son's baptism? Like, I wanted to do it because I've always been like, whatever you want to do, that's, if that's what you want to do, I'm there. I'm there with balloons and cake and whatever. If you want to do it, I'm gung-ho. Even if it's not something I approve of, I'm like, live your life. Go for it, kids. And uh, my, ki- my kids are good kids. They're like A-plus kids. And I'm always telling them, like, go to the principal's office sometime. Live like a little bit. Like, <laughs> you're out your system now. They're like, you're so funny, mom. And they go about being straight-laced awesome kids. Um, so anyways. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting off on a tangent, but, um, yeah, that was, a that was hard. He ended up not getting baptized and I think it was still hard on him to not get baptized. And I really regret it. I really wish we could have, like, I, I just couldn't for my own sake do it. Um, which is a lot to put on a kid. Like I'm basically making that decision for him. So I feel a lot of guilt there. Then um, my daughter, she was still attending, and um, this is my second daughter, so my third child. She goes into sacrament meeting one day, and they're singing, families can be together forever. And she is looking around, and, like, she's there with her grandma. We're in the same ward. And um, her aunts and uncles. But, like, I'm not there. And um, some of her siblings aren't there. And I think at that point, my husband had been hit or missed with church. So he wasn't there that Sunday. And she's like, if families can be together forever, I want to be together with my family. Like, why am I here? <laughs> like, my family's there. She decided to stay with us at home more. And she said, one thing I asked her before this interview, I was like, what belief changed the most from before to, to now? And she's like, I used to bet my friends based off of they were Mormon. I could have a friend that wasn't non-Mormon, but they would never be a close friend. I would always question their their goodness or whatever. And um, she's like, since leaving Mormonism, like I still have Mormon friends that are good friends, but now I have non-Mormon friends that are good friends. Yeah, her whole world is open up, and she's like, I would be friends with this kid or this kid. Like now I am, and they're like great friends I'm less judgy and I feel less obligation to be judgy and my world has expanded and it's just so beautiful hearing that and she's like oh swimsuit shopping is so much easier (laughs) 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 yeah oh wow well you definitely paved the way for your kids to have a beautiful life yeah it's true I was gonna talk lastly about my son I think he took it the hardest he's my oldest son and so when my husband was going to church, she was like, yes, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep sticking to this. This is the right thing. And I feel like it was so hard for him seeing me flip, like on a dime, like being so into it and then just being like, I can't anymore. He was very quiet about it. Like, and it was hard to like open up about it. And he didn't know what to think about it. And it was hard for him to tell his friends because he has some friends that are very very Mormon still. And I think he felt like he would be judged. And um, it's been a harder process, I think, for him than the others. I'm sure it's been hard for the others too. But I asked him, well, do you ever regret that I did this? And he said, no, mom, I don't think so. Because eventually I would 
need to get out and it's better that I get out now when I'm young when I have you guys to support me and it's easier for me to grasp mentally like my mind's more open and I'm I I don't know it was very beautiful I was just like good on you like you're you're just an amazing kid super beautiful that's so sweet how mature of your children I love that well you seem like you are doing so great now and I'm just so happy that you came on to tell your story and I appreciate all the vulnerability and just being open and honest. I think people will see a lot of themselves at least in the second half of the story uh, because it is so relatable and in fact um For our listeners at the end, if you want to watch an episode similar to this one, I will link up here an episode that I did with my mom that has a lot of the same energy of the feeling the weight of the perfectionism and just when it gets too much and when you realize you're going to the church for all the wrong reasons and you're not even connecting to a higher power and it's just exhausting and it's hard. And I think something that I want to mention here as it's coming up in my head is Especially with you, Rachel, when you're saying, I just thought I couldn't hack it because we're taught that it's supposed to be hard and that you're supposed to suffer because it's the righteous suffering Mm -hmm. that's going to get you to the highest level of heaven. And that's just something that they use to keep you in because they see their, their members struggling and they just tell them, well, that's how it's supposed to be. And so you start to question yourself, as you mentioned. So I think that's an important distinction to make as well. Not only that, but it's an honor to suffer. That means you're more righteous. Like it it pushes you deeper into it. So for anyone out there watching who is feeling that same way, just know that you don't have to suffer. It doesn't have to be that way. Rachel's a beautiful example of this. My mom, same thing. It doesn't have to be hard. And a lot of times when we are in these high control groups, it feels like there's no other way. And that's what we're here to tell you is that there is another way and you can find your way to happiness and it will be hard getting out of it, but not nearly as hard as being in it. The reward is always worth the struggle of deconstructing and leaving and finding who you really are. So thank you for sharing. And before we go, I need to get your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement as the arguing toddler goes, um, (laughs) or you can say something inspirational for our viewers, listeners. So as I was deconstructing both religions, especially the last day stuff, there wasn't a lot of material out there. I hadn't heard very many people with a background similar to mine, but I know they're out there because I've moved around a lot and I, I know the telltale signs of crazy. <laughs> um, so I, that's why I wanted to come on this. I wanted to share this to help them. Yeah. There's someone out there that has to construct something crazy. And I think it will help mainstream Mormons as well or any, any cult to deacon when you hear any cool story it helps a lot so i feel i feel like there's there's been a lot of ships selling in the night helping me pull through on my journey telling their stories telling just that showing me that that it's possible to to deconstruct and i wanted to add to that voice like it's 
it's been a profound effect on me. I, I definitely want to pull them along in their, their dark travel through the night. Yeah. Um, my, so my Linda Liston goes along with that. It's, it's, uh, it's not your fault. None of this is your fault. Like I took it a lot as it was my fault in my childhood when things weren't perfect. I took it as it was my fault. I needed to be a, a mini mom, a better mom, even though I wasn't a mom to my siblings. And uh, then I took it as it was my fault in Mormonism and that I needed to be a better human being. And I don't know, just all of it. I, took, I always took it as my fault when something was going wrong, which is a very common reaction when you are in a high control group or a cult or anything. Like you, you're the scapegoat in their story and uh, it's not your fault. And what I, I think that's my Linda lesson. I'll say it with more sass this time. Like, it is not your fault, girl. <laughs> it is not your fault. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I love that so much. That's amazing. Thank you again. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? So coming onto this pod- podcast was, like, super nerve-wracking for me because there's this part of living in a family that's so religious and so um, tight-knit, culty, if you will. Yeah. Uh that you keep their secrets, like not just about like religious things, but also like the stuff with CPS. Like we, we needed to keep our family secret, um, that we're poor, that we're being neglected, that we believe crazy things. So it was hard for me to come here and like open up about those, those secrets because they're dark and that conditioning's real. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's some crazy stuff. Like you really feel obligated to never like, and I'm afraid of a backlash that like siblings will come to me and tell me thing like, how dare you and guilt me and shame me for mm-hmm. doing this, even though it felt right and true to myself yeah. and true to my intuition. It just, I, I don't know. And, and then keeping secrets for the church, like I, that's also another thing. <sighs> lots, lots of stuff behind that. Like, um, I don't know. I'm afraid of the backlash with like my mother-in-law and my in-laws like well even my siblings who are all from the outside look like mainstream mormons um yeah there's a lot of you can leave but keep keep your mouth shut yeah. which is ironic because like here i am getting missionaries come to my house yeah. and church members coming to my house and talking to me and i'm like i'm supposed to be quiet here and yeah, yeah. you guys can't shut up <laughs> exactly it's such a hard thing to tell your story and I commend you a million times for doing that. And I, I know what it's like for family members to be like, oh, that's Shalise just doing that. You know, what is she doing over here led by Satan? So I can understand that. And I think I speak for everyone who's watching this video. Thank you so much for being brave and for accepting whatever consequences may follow because of this. And this is a shout out to all of those people listening. Drop a comment right now about what you thought of the episode give Rachel some support know that she's not alone in this and don't don't make me the only one thanking her for coming on and sharing her story (laughs) well thanks I appreciate it you're welcome there's this beautiful thing that happens when you do open up about things that you have been keeping secrets about it's not only good for you it's good for other humans to hear it happening just telling your story when you survive something that's challenging, it really helps 
because you like word vomit all this stuff out and you you kind of revisit that past, but then you're not living in it anymore. Like after you share, after you say it enough times, you're like, okay, that's nice. Now I can live my life, like the now. Mm. Do you feel like you came to a good place yourself today after sharing everything that you shared with me? I think I will after like, I'm like still, still antsy now, like, you know, yeah. it's <laughs> hard to be on here, but um, I think I will. Yeah, there there tends to be a vulnerability hangover after big interviews like this where you just have to uh, let out a deep breath and go do some self-care <laughs> and kind of settle into what just happened. So I hope you're able to do that for yourself today. Thank you, Shalise, for doing this. Like, you're a huge asset and help to people who are struggling with this. And I love that you get so many perspectives from different people deconstructing from different things. And it's always so relatable and so beautiful and so strengthening and also just like, ah, it's refreshing. Aww. So I really appreciate your, your life work is, is really a benefit to humanity. So way to go. Thank Shalise. you so much. <laughs> and I can't even take all the credit because I grew up in a cult and I never thought that it would lead to this, but Really, it's the people such as yourselves who are telling their stories. They're the true heroes here. I just ask the questions, but I do really appreciate that. Thank you so much for your support. And for everyone else listening, if you also want to support the podcast, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash cults to consciousness, where we go into more behind the scenes things, what's going on with the podcast, updates and such. And thank you again. Until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with their visibility. You can also find me on social media at cults to consciousness or reach out by email at cults to consciousness at gmail.com.